welcome to the Rockin' Life podcast, Rockin' Life After Divorce. And today we have Jacob here today. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. That is so awesome to interview people. This is my passion. I love interviewing people, being the curious person and finding out these stories. And you're an entrepreneur. You are an explorer. I'm an explorer too. Adventure. I love adventure. And um, Star Wars enthusiast. I'm not, but I think I'm going to start trying to become one because I hear so many people, including my kids, tell all these stories about Star Wars. And you also divorced father of four. You were married at 23 for 11 years and you have been separated slash divorced for about a year. And I'd love to interview people that's gone through the divorce. You're fairly fresh out of the divorce. I hear that you have gotten a lot of wisdom about the divorce and you understand your part of it, your ex-wife's part of it and part of what's happened. So I'd love to hear that story. And that's what this podcast is about. It's uh, I call it the Rockin' Life podcast because I started rock climbing and uh, life is so much like rock climbing. You have easy paths, you have difficult paths and you learn while climbing this life to, to navigate those difficult hard paths and uh, that's what this podcast is about to be an encouragement to people that are navigating this difficult part of the journey of divorce this podcast and the rocking life facebook community will be that catalyst to help you turn that struggle after divorce into a thriving life and i totally believe that divorce can be an amazing opportunity opening your eyes to turn the rest of your life into an amazing future. And if you have any questions, please email us to rockinlifepodcast at gmail.com. If you have any questions, you can also click the link below and record your audio question. I get so many questions. I get so many encouragements from you guys, and it's awesome to hear them. It's very encouraging to continue the podcast. And today, Jacob, you're going to share a little story, what happened a little bit about the divorce and what was that story all about? Yeah, I wanted to share a quick story. There was about three years before we actually started the discussions of being separated and divorced where we were rocky and we knew we were going to therapy and couples counseling and other things, trying to work through things. And obviously we were very interested in the best life for our kids and discussing how we can uh, you know, stay together to preserve that. But there was one experience. So just a little bit of background. I have some experience in real estate investing and I have a couple of friends that I've worked with. And the context for this is that typically I've been the one focused on financial matters and, and how we invest and how we use our money. And I've invited and tried to get her interested and she's usually not been very interested, but at least we've been open about it. While we were in this state and while we were getting close, as I mentioned, to really discussing a separation and divorce, I was also on the brink of purchasing with a business partner, a new investment property. And for this particular investment property, I needed to open a new bank account. And this was fairly routine for me. It's something that's often, if you want to have access to a certain type of loan, through a bank, you open a bank account, so you're a member there, so you can get access to that loan. And this is maybe a, a precursor to some of the reasons on, on my end of why we got divorced is I, I didn't think through what the implications of that timing of opening a bank account would mean. And so I opened the bank account and we put $10 in there, I think, in order just to have that membership. And, and I left the bank account information in my car. And I can't remember what the reason is, but she needed to drive my car instead of the one that she typically drives. 
And she came home after driving that car and she was just stone face cold. And I knew something was up. And this is the story of our marriage. We were terrible communicators on both ends. We usually would let things happen and then let them sit until they build up and then they'd explode. And so I, I knew something had happened and I didn't really know how to deal with it or how to bring it out. And it eventually came out that she found the papers of the new bank account. And her mind automatically jumped knowing that we were in this rocky position, like, oh, he's preparing to divide the assets, to hide things from me. This is going to go the worst case scenario. And when that all came out, it was explosive on both of our end. I felt a little wounded and hurt by kind of those accusations because I don't think I'd ever given her any reason to, to believe that I would do something like that. She obviously felt hurt and scared about something that could potentially really hurt her and her divorce. And after the fact, we were able to realize, I was able to see, yeah, that timing and leaving that out and not discussing that was probably pretty short-sighted on my end. On the other hand, she was able to see her jumping to conclusions and assuming the worst was problematic on her end. And we were able to come uh, to a better conclusion, not to a point where we saved the marriage, but I think this really does illustrate a lot of the assumptions that we make, the communication issues and problems. And I'll talk about this more uh, a lot of our problems come from our childhood traumas. I struggled a lot with never feeling good enough and always feeling wow. like I wasn't enough. And she struggled a lot with betrayal from some of the things in her childhood, but also from our marriage. And so those two things together, this just illustrates how this led to her feeling betrayed. And this led to me never feeling good enough because I felt like I was actually doing the right thing for both of our futures. Anyway, that, that's just an interesting story, I think, that really captures a small little day-to-day -day happening that can really explain kind of some of the dynamics of our marriage. I think uh, it's so common. I think it happens in every single divorce where you have misunderstanding and also it brings fear and fear can trigger things in you. It's like uh, it's uh, obviously your ex-wife was triggered in some kind of fear of you already preparing and hiding stuff and then she's reacting. And then how do you react to her little bit accusations, but she didn't know. How did you react to it? I mean, my initial reaction what I felt inside was hurt. I felt hurt that just because we were moving toward a divorce, that she would think my disposition or who I was as a person, my, my moral compass, so to speak, would diverge so much from what she'd known. So it felt like I was a different person in her eyes. And that really hurt for me initially. And so I was mad at that. I was saying, how dare you accuse me of such a thing? And then after a while, I was able to take a step back and really see my partner and really understand and hold space for her fear is legitimate. And there are certainly enough stories, even in our personal friendships of situations where such things have happened seemingly out of the blue. And having that space and understanding, we were able to lower our emotions and, and reactions and, and actually see the truth of the situation and move forward from there. I wanted to come back to that. Uh, I just want to start with... Uh your title of the podcast. I think it's very interesting. Uh, divorce is a sign of success, not failure. Can you explain why you put that as a title? I always ask the interviewer for a recommendation as a title for the podcast. Yeah. So here's another quick story. In Utah, before you get divorced, you have to take a class from the state to, to actually have your divorce signed. And if you have kids, there's another one. And both of those classes, I remember there was this deep assumption that was permeating throughout all of the curriculum that somehow because you're not staying married, you've failed. Yeah. And it really rubbed me the wrong way. And uh, a lot of this comes from my background recently. So a little bit of context we might get into later. I've been undergoing a faith transition. I grew up LDS, part of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and about in the last 
two, three years I've been exiting and, and now I'm fully removed from the church. But as part of my new spiritual journey, I've really resonated with a lot of Buddhist principles. And one of the key principles that I think I really hold dear is this idea of non-attachment. And it's interesting because non-attachment in relation to relationships sometimes comes off as non-commitment, and those are not the same thing. Non-attachment connected with this other idea of impermanence, impermanence, the idea that everything changes and nothing stays the same. To me, it means that if I looked at a relationship and the only measure of success for that relationship is if it lasts the entirety of my life or in an LDS context, the entirety of infinity or whatever of eternal life, yeah. that's the only you know, definition of a successful relationship. Then of course, if I look at it through that lens, a divorce is a failure. Um, because we didn't reach the the intended length of that relationship. But when I switch gears and look at it through my new perspective, I realize life is an ebb and flow and our journeys go different places. And the story of our divorce is that we were both in the very same mindset. We had four amazing children. We grew together in lots of different ways. We really do still have a friendship, but we came to the point where it wasn't skillful for us to continue moving forward in that dynamic of a relationship. And so yeah. in order for us to continue succeeding and dropping that expectation that the only successful relationship has to last a lifetime, I'm able to look at that relationship and say, no, we succeeded for the 11 years that we were married. Succeed might be an interesting term. I, there were definitely positives and negatives throughout that 11 years, of course, but we had four wonderful kids. We built a life. We've learned a lot from each other and we're going to move forward now in our divorce lives, continuing to succeed in our next relationships that we have. And so I, I really like to look at it with that perspective. And I like to share that with others too, because often, as I mentioned, my childhood trauma that I still struggle with is never feeling good enough. And adding a monumental failure, such as this relationship that was supposed to last my whole life didn't triggers that and a reframing and reperspective for me uh, really is a way for me, I feel like, to continue progressing. I can relate so much. I was married for 20 years and I felt like a failure. Even before the divorce, I didn't want to share with any of my close friends, especially the church. I stopped going to that church because I felt, and it was more of a feeling than uh, an actual accusation that I failed. But uh, I felt like I failed probably a lot due to both I having parents, my own parents, they stayed married, even though they had a, a difficult time in their mid, mid of their relationship, but they hung in and they had an amazing relationship in the end. But I felt like a failure, probably both of that and also that the church talked so much about staying married and never talked about divorce and how to deal with divorce. And that's a big reason why I want to talk about it. And there's so much stigma around divorce. It's ridiculous. Like I'm asking people to share this podcast with their friends and they don't want to share it because they're married. This is not the virus that's going to infect you. <laughs> right. Divorce isn't contagious. No, exactly. So it, the fear is real. The yeah. fear that you mentioned, and especially in a religious context. Yeah. Um, I remember that's probably the thing that delayed our actually discussing divorce for the longest time because of that stigma. Um, yeah. But once we were able to get over the fact that, like I said, if we can personally say it's not a failure, but then we can also see it as a stepping stone in the continuing progress of our own individual paths, it became a lot more. For me, it was not the only thing I was dealing with shame about. And it's definitely something that I've been dealing with throughout my life. And the divorce actually helped me a lot 
I started traveling a lot back and forth to Sweden and uh, on the airplanes, I wanted to start to become a better connector. How do you really connect with other people on a deeper level, not just mm -hmm. the surface sports and weather? So I started talking to people and I became a life coach and my coach and mentor, John Maxwell, has a book called Everyone Communicates But Few Connect. So I started practicing those principles on the people next to me. And then I started sharing about the divorce, even though I was uncomfortable sharing it with people in church, but somebody that I'm never going to talk to again, I was comfortable sharing that. And then this shame just dissipated. Later on, I, I read a book by Brene Brown. She's a shame researcher. And the shame wants you to be quiet about what you're ashamed of. But when you start sharing and opening up, it dissipates. It hides in darkness. It doesn't like light. Exactly. Yeah. And I didn't understand why the shame dissipated until I read the book. And it was pretty awesome. So I truly understand the struggle. And I really like your title, Divorce is a Sign of Success, Not Failure. And I think the life you have right now can feel very dark. It can be very depressing. It was for me for years. But it can truly be the best catalyst where you're opening up your eyes, where you can actually make it turn and just keep on going. That's what I say. Just keep on going. You might not see the progress when you're in the middle of it. But that's why I want to interview people like Jacob and hear their story. How did you move through this? I know that you had a transition of faith from LDS, the Mormon church, and how did that play a role in your divorce and in your marriage? Yeah, this is a huge question because on the outset, people who are acquaintances with us, what they've probably seen is, okay, they have a great marriage because all they post on social media is the great things. I mean, yeah. It's just the way the <laughs> world works. And then all of a sudden, wait, Jacob's kind of doing some things that aren't really consistent with the church. And then Jacob comes out and says he's leaving the church and then they get divorced. A lot of acquaintances make the assumption that, oh, in the church, you need to be married in the temple. You need to have this expectation, like you said, of an eternal relationship. Jacob broke the agreement and so they got divorced. I want to say that it might be easy to say that's why and what happened, but it's not true. It definitely was a factor and a catalyst, but it wasn't the cause. Actually, I have had a lot of time to look back and reflect. Hindsight's always twenty twenty. And what I realized is I've been learning about intimacy and how intimacy is, is not just physical. And there are so many different aspects of how to have a real intimate relationship with somebody. I think several of those different subcomponents of intimacy, we never really worked on because we had so many assumed shared values and beliefs through the church that it was like a crutch, if that makes sense. Like this yeah. area we didn't have to talk about. We didn't have to work on or discuss or give any effort because it was assumed that we were on the same page. And for so long, we went along with that assumption and, and things were pretty dandy as, as we lived relatively similarly, at least in terms of our values, in terms of you know, our behaviors and that sort of thing. But when I began to recognize that I needed to shift pretty significantly in some of my values and some of my behaviors in order for me to continue on what I felt was my spiritual journey, what it did, it helped illuminate these areas that we thought we never even had to talk about or worry about. And then we realized, oh, geez, there's some pretty significant incompatibilities and we haven't really worked these muscles in our relationship. And now that this brace or this crutch is taken away, this weakness is really apparent. And so that's one thing that I think me leaving was removing that kind of extra support system 
to our relationship. And then we saw it really stood. And that plus the, the kind of diverging direction in terms of what we considered to be most important to us in our personal values, I think really was the main cause of us saying, okay, it makes more sense for both of our happiness and progression for us to maintain a co-parenting relationship and a friendship in terms of intimate partner relationship to move other ways. So I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, I definitely understand. I usually say that I'm not religious, but I'm a Christian. I think legalism can really be a crutch in a relationship or in life. I'm definitely a, a believer, and but I don't like legalism and that what can come out of that. But when you say that you had from your past not feeling good enough, how did, did that affect your relationship? Definitely. So I, let me dig into that a little bit. And this starts getting into the point of the mistakes I've made in the yeah. relationship. And there are many. And it, it really is connected to the church. I, I love your authentic, being authentic and being able to share. That's why I really appreciate about people that I interview that they, they can actually be open because a lot, especially guys have a little hard, harder time to be open, be real. But that's what people want to hear and hear this authentic person sharing their strife and their failures. And because it's always a two-way street, it's not only one person's fault of a divorce. Right. I'd love to hear that. Yeah. So uh, long story short, and this really is a long story that we don't have enough time to, to get into. So I'll try to summarize as best I can. The LDS church is very extreme, maybe too strong of a word, but they have a lot of rules and things. And one thing that I struggled with early on was pornography. I wouldn't, looking back at it now, I realized that my pornography use and exploration probably wasn't any different and might even be less than what's typical, but you never talk about it. And so yeah. the only experience that I had with pornography growing up in the church was knowing that it was the sin next to murder and that participating in it made me a terrible person. And then the small experiences where my mom would find out when I was a you know young teenager that I'd looked at it and her blowing up where she usually isn't a very emotional person or having to go meet one-on-one -on -one with a bishop and confess and divulge these things really built up this stigma inside myself. And I mentioned the never good enough. I always felt like there was this one area in my life that I just couldn't keep under control. And so the church also is very happy to label any sort of pornography use as an addiction, which I have a lot of problems with. And I, again, that's maybe a side topic of conversation, but I came into my marriage thinking that I was addicted to porn and thinking that I would get over it because I was a virgin. That's another thing from the church. We both were when we were married. And so, you know, yeah. being able to be physically intimate would cure the addiction and, and I would be able to have this healthy relationship and I wouldn't need this other piece anymore, which isn't true because again, long story short, pornography, I believe isn't an addiction. It may be compulsive in some cases, but it's driven by shame. And yeah. there actually is significant studies that show there's a high correlation between distress that pornography causes and people who are part of a shame-based religion or a high demand religion, such as Mormonism. So anyway, that was a significant point of strife in our marriage. There were several times where it would kick up and, and I would look at pornography and she would find out about it. And obviously she felt betrayed. Yeah, She felt hurt. She felt like it meant she wasn't providing enough or that I wasn't satisfied with her and it, it caused some problems. And, and we've worked through several things and I'm, I'm not going to go super deep into that, but to your question, both about how the church influenced our divorce, but also how this feeling of never feeling good enough, what we would recognize is we would get in this cycle 
where I would feel like I'm a terrible person because I would occasionally go and look at porn. And whenever that happened, she felt incredibly betrayed. And when she felt betrayed, we even started working through counselors and they would institute things like they would call them boundaries. And I respect and understand boundaries, but in some cases they would even go to the point of it being a punishment where if you look at it at this point, then you need to sleep on the couch for this many days. It wasn't so much phrased as like, I need my space, but it was like, you need to be uncomfortable to think about what you did. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I know boundaries are important, especially where they're protecting someone who's experiencing betrayal. So I'm not trying to minimize that, but in our case, it, it seemed a little bit punitive. But what that did is then it made me feel even worse, which made me feel even more shame. So I would translate my behavior as I'm a terrible person. And then me feeling like I'm a terrible person caused a significant amount of distress. And the way that I had learned from childhood to deal with my distress was to self-soothe with porn. It creates the cycle. And then, you know, it happens again. And, and then she feels more betrayed. And it created a really negative spiral where it bled into other areas of our life. As I mentioned in the beginning, the story about the bank account, there was so much hyper activity on both of our ends for anything that she would say negative or critical, I would take as a, a dagger to my self-worth. Yeah. I would be terrible about it. And anything that I would do, like I said, that even hinted at any sort of breach of trust, she would take as a dagger and feel incredibly betrayed. And since there was so much mounting throughout our marriage for both of these things, like I said, even the smallest things would trigger these and we didn't know how to deal with it. And it was just a negative spiral that would keep going. That can be very difficult. Moving into the divorce, and how did you deal with the divorce? I know that you're successfully co-parenting. That's awesome. One, one of the most important things, because the kids, a lot of times when there's strife, get in the middle and they get hurt. What have you learned from going through the divorce about yourself that you didn't know? Yeah, these are great questions. I'm going to continue on the narrative a little bit to answer that question. So a lot of this came to a head about the same time that I left the church and about the same time that we began considering divorce. And in that time, I started, as I mentioned earlier, adopting a lot of Buddhist or Eastern spirituality, mindfulness, meditation practices. And in that, I learned slowly to start to hold space and self-acceptance for who I was and realize that there really wasn't anything wrong with me. Yeah. And that I was whole and there wasn't anything wrong with her and that she was whole and that deep down the things that cause strife are all of these additional kind of expectations and attachments that cause conflict, if that makes sense. And so I think as part of the divorce, learning to really a see myself in a better light and see my true value and then learn to see that in others. And so like when there were, was conflict and when there was issues that we couldn't work through, trying to separate the behavior, the conflict, the, the situation from the intrinsic value from both me and the other individual, I think was a huge step forward. So I could accept and I could hold space and I could understand and try to really listen while at the same time recognizing what my ultimate needs were in order to continue progressing on my journey. I think there was a lot of forgiveness on both ends that started happening really in our last year of divorce, which I know is, is kind of different than other experiences. Usually in someone's last year leading up to a divorce is maybe the culmination of problems or conflict. But for us, it was really, I think we'd accepted, yeah, we're not the right fit. And as we were going through the separation divorce process, I think we were already starting to see, okay, how can we now transition and say this part of our relationship is 
we need to let it go. There's no holding on to it. And we need to exercise forgiveness. And I think we both were able to, to do that pretty maturely and then transition into, okay, now we have four kids that we together brought into the world that we both love dearly. And so what can we do and how can we preserve our relationship so that they stay front and center and so that they are disrupted minimally? Because I know I'm talking a lot, but I guess that's the point. Oh um, yeah. <laughs> my parents divorced when I was nine. Yeah. And my oldest was nine when I separated. And just that fact was a big thing for me is I could remember how I felt when my parents told me they were getting divorced and, and how they handled it and the times that I saw my dad versus the times I saw my mom and how they talked about each other. And I learned a lot. Unfortunately, it was mostly about what not to do, but I learned a lot about that perspective. And when we really tried to implement things that would minimize the disruption for the kids. And so I think having that shared love and seeing she's an amazing mother. I love her dearly as the mother of my children. And I always will. And I believe she feels the same way about me. And so with having that central core, I think we were able to let go of, like I said, the faults that we each had in the relationship side or the, the intimate partner relationship side of things, and then rally around the part that will keep us together throughout the rest of our lives, really. Yeah, that's very interesting what you said about your parents having a divorce and how that affected you and learning from that to be able to create something better for your kids. What was the most difficult growing up in a family where your parents divorced? Without getting too personal, my dad basically went AWOL. I felt a lot of neglect and that I mentioned trauma from never feeling good enough. I translated that into being, I'm not worthy for his attention, time, and love. And that, that was really hard. I saw him once every other weekend. And the times that I saw him, he was so enveloped in multi-level marketing type business pursuits. That's all we would do is we would go to these conferences and first discussion MLM meetings with people. And I felt like kind of a afterthought to those. Okay. And I never felt prioritized. I never felt like he actually wanted to spend time with me and he would talk a good talk, but his actions never showed that he cared. And that neglect really hurt. And I still go to therapy for EMDR and other things that I'm, I'm working through from that childhood trauma. So recognizing that I was able to say, okay, how do we want to craft this co-parenting relationship? So for example, I mentioned I did some real estate investing. And so when we had a, a home that we'd lived in for about a year and a half, beautiful home and vineyard. And I had another home that I had renters in Eagle Mountain, where we moved from before. And the kids had already lived there. They had friends there. And at first it was like, oh yeah, this makes total sense. We'll kick the renters out. I'll go live there. It's a home they're already familiar with. That'll be great for the kids. And then as we thought about our values, we realized having them have the same group of friends and not have dad's area and dad's friends and mom area and mom friend is actually really important to me. And not feeling, because I remember when I would go to my dad's house, it was always in different parts of town. And I always felt alienated a little bit yeah. um, and isolated. I never really felt like that was home. Mom's house was home. Dad's house was this weird place that I'd have to go to every once in a while. And this kind of talks to some of the cooperation we had around the kids we actually delayed filing for a month so that we could purchase a townhome that was in the neighborhood. It was about a mile away from where the kid's mom lives. Yeah. And that facilitated same school. We can transition back and forth much easier. The kids could ride their bikes to my house. So having that proximity was really important to us. And we prioritized that. Even when we had other options, that may have been easier. There's several other pieces that we went through. Our custody schedule is unique. So I take them every Monday, every Thursday, and then every other weekend. And again, it was because I didn't want to have too much time go by without seeing my kids. And yeah. 
holding them and letting them know I love them and letting them know that they have two parents that are really active and, and caring in their life. And, and working with their mom, it was, there was just a lot of, like I said, collaboration, willing to compromise, willing to put down kind of individual needs in order to put the kids first and, and rally behind that. And that is truly beautiful when you can actually work together for the best of the kids. And I've heard more about your story about you bent over backwards pretty much trying to get this to work, including when it comes to financially. What did you do or together for your ex-wife to make it work for her? Yeah, I'm definitely of the opinion. This kind of goes back to the church too. When we were married, we had, it wasn't a verbal agreement, but there was an agreement for sure that my role was to go continue my education. She helped support me through my master's PhD. And I, I started growing my career. She dropped out of college when we got married to have our first kid. She wanted to get a business degree and she wanted to do more with that. She had her cosmetology license. And so she'd practice that throughout the years just in the home from time to time. But I recognize that for her, that was a big sacrifice where she could have had we divvied up the, the responsibility of, of caring for the kids and doing kind of the more quote unquote homemaker stuff, she could have progressed in her career at an equal rate as I did. And, but we didn't do that. And we had an agreement, so to speak, where that was my role and, and this was her role. I'm not defending or saying those roles are right and wrong. That's just what yeah. happened. And so coming to this point, realizing she's behind the game professionally. She doesn't have a ton of work experience. She doesn't have a college degree. She has a cosmetology license, but she hasn't even been practicing that full-time. In order to just drop her into the world as a single mom half-time with four kids and try to meet the standard of living that her and the kids are used to, that it's not fair. And the fair thing really is, because she made that sacrifice, I, I look at alimony as a little bit of a repayment and a, a time to give her enough time to go and regain that experience, yeah. regain that education if she needs to, regain additional certifications. And she's doing that. She's learning how to do eyelashes and, and other things that are a little bit more profitable in the cosmetology industry. She's working more. And I feel like that's only fair. And so that's the way I, I kind of approach alimony is I really do feel like it. It was an agreement that we had. And not only were our assets need to be split 50-50, but there does need to be a time where she can be supported in catching up from what she lost. Yeah. And I think uh, you can learn a lot from that. You being generous because a lot of times money is a big problem in divorces where you can't work through the financial issues and to come to a mutual agreement. And I think a big problem in divorces where you have two different lawyers trying to get the best for their part instead of collaborating. Mm -hmm. I know they have collaborative divorce where you actually have counselors involved in the divorce process oh, wow. and coaches to get the best for the whole family, not the individual families. And I think that's the absolutely best way if you have a, a high conflict divorce to have that type of process instead of having two different lawyers battling it out. It's just, uh, in our case, it was terrible. Yeah. Like, uh, but in moving on, you have gotten a little bit of perspective from the divorce and the separation and you love nature and adventure. Uh, what have you done to kind of feel better yourself and move away from this difficult part and also becoming a better person yourself? Yeah, there's a lot to that. And it wasn't easy to go through a divorce in 2020 of all years. So add on the stress that comes from a global pandemic, and I'm a business owner, and the stress that comes with some of the business impacts from the pandemic and slowing growth and other things like that. There certainly was just really mounting amounts of distress, I feel like, both through divorce, through leaving the church, through 
all the other things that were happening. And I was able to find some of the things that I really loved that were also what I would consider self-care. And I think that's an important distinction to make because I also love eating ice cream. Yeah. I love watching Netflix and there's other things that I love. And I'm not saying don't do those. Like I for sure do those, but I was able to find the things that also constituted self-care and by self-care, the things that after doing the activity, I really do feel like it positively moved me to become a better person, to be in a better direction. Ice cream, as much as I love it, doesn't do that for me, but hiking in nature, appreciating nature, having a meditative experience does. And so I learned to prioritize the things that are both things that I enjoy and things that I love. And also I started dabbling with things that I didn't necessarily love. And so there's a little bit of kind of Buddhism in that too, where uh, a lot of what they teach is to get to the true reality of, of experiencing the present moment. You actually have to step away from your initial judgments of, I like this thing, or I don't like this thing. Try to remove that and then just say, I want to experience the thing as it is, regardless of whether I like it or don't like it. There's some things that I've started doing to some degree. There's some cold discomfort that I've done where going into cold water, I really don't like that. Yeah. If I'm being honest, but, but learning to strip that away and just experience it and realize, oh, I'm not going to get hypothermia for being in cold water for two minutes. There really is no mortal danger. And I can observe my reactions to that. And there have been other things too. Like I've been trying to be a little bit more social. I'm an introvert at heart. And so trying to go out and, and put myself in situations where I'm a little bit uncomfortable socially, but recognizing that learning to be a social being and learning to connect on that way, I think is really positive for, for my overall development and growth. Another thing is I took up boxing as a, a way of exercise. I really love it because it, not only does it stimulate me physically, it's a great workout. It's almost like a CrossFit type yeah. workout where you're punching a bag and you're focusing on technique and you're switching that in between different kind of body exercises. But I love the mind. It stimulates the mind as well, focusing on technique, focusing on something else while you're doing it, but it's not comfortable, but I've learned to love it. And I see the benefits that come from it, both from my, my enjoyment, but also physically. And so anyway, th those are some of the things that I, I've been trying to emphasize. And I'm talking as if I've mastered this and I do it perfectly. And that's definitely not the case. There's sometimes my alarm goes off at 5.30 and I turn it off and I said, nope, not going to do it today. Yeah. And there are times where I'm like, no, I really want that ice cream. But I guess just trying to put emphasis on the things that I know I both enjoy, but also will make me better. I think it's important to see that you're taking steps and you're aware. For me, the divorce initially for the first probably year and a half was a, just a big fog. It was a period of awakening, but I didn't feel like I was making progress. I yeah. felt I used to take the example of sitting in a rowing boat in the middle of the ocean rowing, but you don't see you're moving. And just being uh, more and more uh, lonely and depressed, and I'm an introvert as well, and just moved from Sweden to the US not having friends. Uh -huh. Yeah. And uh, so it was definitely a difficult period. And to have people around you, I think it's one of the most crucial things to go through divorce in a good way, to either have some close friends that you trust, having a counselor, have a coach, having a, a mentor. Is that something that you had in your moving through the divorce? 100%. Yep. I had a great counselor therapist that I connected with really well, and he was incredibly instrumental and working through the divorce initially and the pain and the loss and the grief that comes through that for sure. I also had several friends who, two of which had gone through divorces a little bit earlier than me and we were able to bond and they were incredibly helpful. And we still talk very often about the experiences we're going through and finding that connection was hundred percent instrumental for me. And then there's also been, I'm surprised at how many resources there really are out there if you seek them. So 
There's a few different Facebook groups I'm a part of. There's a few other groups that I've really found a tribe in some sense and people that can understand. And I want to point out something you said really early on regarding shame and Brene Brown and light. I think one of the biggest things for me that was the biggest aha is I remember the first time I went on a date after being divorced and it was a good experience and I opened up and it was so foreign to me because I always kept things so clammed and I always thought that I had to present this fake persona to the world so I can be accepted. (laughs) And it's risky to be vulnerable. It really is. But when you can be vulnerable and then when someone accepts you, even though you're showing your true color, so to speak, or you're airing your dirty laundry. And it wasn't that bad, but like that taught me like, oh, not only am I acceptable who I really am at my core, but I'm seeing their reaction and their acceptance of me. It actually changes how I look at myself. And so learning more and more how to be vulnerable, how to just open up to people and put that risk. And there've been times I won't, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. There've been times that I've put myself out there and I've been hurt. Um, And people haven't accepted me, but the times where they have, I feel like so far outweigh the times that I've been hurt, that it's something I would recommend to anyone is just learning to open up appropriately and find those connections is one of the best ways to then see through others' eyes that you're an acceptable, worthy, awesome human being and start to believe it yourself. Yeah. I worried a lot about what other people thought about me for a long time. And that's pretty common about young people, but even through growing up, And going through the divorce and opening up about the divorce helped me so much. And right now I can share pretty much anything. It's like to come to that point to be able to be you, you know, being ashamed of of your past. And it's very attractive too to uh, talk to people that can be authentic and not having this fake persona up there. It's truly those type of people I love to have on the podcast. I love to have people that can share their hearts, that can share their story. Because that's what life is about. And I think it's very cool that you shared also about your friends, that you connected with a few friends that also gone through divorce. I did the same thing. It was actually not me connecting. It was my friend, uh, one of my best friends. We have a small group at church. And I barely knew him, but he invited me for lunch. And he had just gone through divorce. He just got an apartment. And then... We actually roommated afterwards. I think it was maybe six months or a year after the divorce that we started roommating. And we roommated for a year and a half. And that was the best thing. The loneliness started dissipating. Have a friend that you can talk to. And right now, we're best friends. We talk every week. We play golf together. It's so awesome to have those type of friendships where you can share anything. And I felt that he could relate to me a lot better to a few other friends that had not gone through divorce. My counselor told me, because I was so lonely, the counselor said, just reach out to a few friends that you trust and, and ask them if I can share the this, this story in my hurts. And uh, but it was definitely those two people that had gone through divorce that could relate and understand me. And that was so awesome to have those friends going through this. So. If you're out there feeling lonely, depressed, suicidal thoughts is so common. So many people, pretty much every single person have gone through a very traumatic divorce. Uh, Reach out to people. Reach out to a few close friends if you have those that you trust. Reach out to a counselor. Reach out to a, a coach or a mentor and gain those connections. I think it's definitely crucial, just like Jacob said. For him, it was also very important to, to move through that. And also, like you said, start uh, finding those loves that you have. I started playing tennis again. I didn't play tennis for 30 years. 
I played tennis in high school, loved it. But then mm-hmm. I just quit for different reasons. And uh, I picked up tennis. And that's also yeah, okay. a very good spot to get to know uh, other people. So I picked that up a year and a half ago. Utah, you're going to have to switch to pickleball, just so you know. Yeah, I heard that. I actually tried pickleball once, and it's a lot easier to learn. Tennis is a lot more difficult to learn, but I'd love to play pickleball just for fun. But I think tennis is my thing. I'll challenge you when you come out there. We'll play. (laughs) Oh, you'll win, because that's definitely not my forte, but I'm up for a challenge. Yeah. No, I think it's important to find those places to meet people. It's a great way to meet people. And we're going to round off the podcast here. And I just wanted to ask you a couple more questions. For a person right now, just going through divorce, it can be similar to you. You just filed the papers. What would you recommend them to do? I'll just throw out some ideas. If they're not going through therapy, I would consider it. And if that's cost prohibitive, you'd be surprised if you can connect through groups, through church, through religious, through other things that you're with. They're often you can find support to help. I found that therapy taught me some really important skills to reframe because I feel, and again, this is the Buddhist in me coming out and I'm not Buddhist religiously, but I really like the philosophy. A lot of the suffering that we experience in life, I feel like comes from the way we react to situations that happen in our life. We can't control a lot of the situations that happen. And I know a lot of people going through divorce can't control the fact that they're going through divorce. You can't control your partner. You can't control other things that happen. But it's the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves or others, the way that we frame it, the way we react, that usually causes the worst part of the distress and suffering that we go through. And so trying to implement ways through therapy, for me, mindfulness and meditation was really helpful. Hiking, I consider a a part of that mindfulness and meditation journey. Finding ways to just reframe the way you look at things and lessen that unnecessary suffering you go through by telling stories that may or may not be true about you or about your spouse or future ex-spouse, I think is really important. And like I said, therapy, mindfulness, other ways, Renee Brown, there's ways that you can learn how to reframe and do that. I think another thing that I would say is my undergrad is in linguistics. So I'm very careful. And I think a lot about the words we use. And I, I actually believe the words that we use have a powerful impact. And a lot of times we might think that the words are a reflection of what's inside. And I think that's true. But I also think that the words we use can actually influence and change how we feel inside. And it might be easy to vent and to use derogatory terms to describe your experience. But if you do that long enough, the words you use will start to then change how you view the experience and it will become a negative spiral. So I I very much believe, regardless of the situation, learning to really focus on using the words that are consistent with the way you want to see the experience. So one example of that, and again, full disclaimer, I know my divorce and marriage is much less volatile than many others and had much less conflict. And so I'm not trying to compare myself to someone who endured maybe a significant amount of betrayal or problems with their divorce. But in any situation, I think you can still be careful about how you choose to speak and look at that relationship. So I personally don't like currently to use the word X to describe my kid's mom. Not that there's anything wrong with that and not that other people might change it. But for me, when I use the word X, it just keeps emphasis on what we're not. Yeah. It focuses on the fact that, hey, once we were a happy married couple and the X implies now we're not that. And so I personally don't want to focus on what we're not anymore. I want to focus on what we are. 
and what we are as co-parents and what she is to me as my kid's mom. And yeah. so oftentimes I really make a focus to in even, even casual conversation, refer to her as, yeah, my kid's mom lives over here. My Anytime that I need to refer to her or just as her name. And like I said, I feel like even if it doesn't necessarily represent how I feel about the situation now, being able to use those words can slowly make an influence and change your perspective. So I think the words you use, the way you talk about your situation and your partner and your future non-partner, I think is also really important to pay attention to. I really like that. It's so common that you have people, especially in some of these divorce groups, throw up about their ex, about all the terrible things. And the more you vent or talk negatively, as initially with my friend in my roommate, he had a very difficult divorce and he was so negative. <laughs> it's like we, we had some intense discussions about that. I understand it can be very hurtful. It can be very traumatic. But I think forgiveness has to come in there and to let go of all those negative things. And like you said, Jacob, the more you talk about it, the more it's going to affect you. And I totally believe that. And just from a psychology, I'm going to nerd out for a minute. Psychology is a lot of what I studied in my graduate work. There's a lot of studies that show that humans are actually terrible at remembering things as they actually happened. And, yeah. and that's because every time you access a memory, you're doing it through the filter of your current perspective. Yeah. And so literally your memories about a situation will change based on your, your perspective. And if you continue using that language, you continue, like you said, venting and building up this narrative, you will start to actually remember that as if it really happened yeah. when it's not the way it really happened. And if we don't recognize that, it, it builds unnecessary hate and anger when the actual situation is not the way you remember it because you've perpetuated this narrative and it's taken on a life of its own. So I think there, there needs to be a lot of care. I'm actually a little bit forgetful myself, but I just saw a, a YouTube clip about people that have a little bit hard time rem remembering are actually very intelligent. So I thought that was a good compliment to make. <laughs> <laughs> it's good being able to be quick to forgive, but also to forget. It's easy to keep things as happen and hold on to them. But I think it's important to be able to quickly let go of things to forget and go on being in the present moment and looking forward instead of always looking in the rearview mirror about everything that's happened. And for me, it's been very, I have an easy time to let go, forgive, forget, whatever you call it, and look presently. I think that's probably something that you need to practice. It's easy to get stuck in this unforgiveness and start focusing on these past events instead of like moving up to where we are right now and dealing with it presently and trying to look forward. Hey, this interview has been so awesome. This is why I love doing interviews, hearing other people's stories, hearing your story. And I know people that are listening right now, they're going to learn things from this and uh, from your story. And it's going to be an encouragement. And that's why I, want, I started this podcast to bring hope to people that are going through this journey and seeing other people's stories, how they moved through and to bring hope to them in this difficult journey. Mm. And if you're listening right now and have a hard time right now, you can actually connect with us on our Facebook group, Rockin' Life After Divorce. And we support each other, we grow together, we, we climb this. Uh, you should call it, it's a Rockin' Life podcast because I started rock climbing with my kids uh, a little over a year ago. 
And uh, this journey can be really difficult. And some paths are difficult in life, just like rock climbing. And then you need to have a guide. Like you would not climb up Mount Everest without a guide if you climb the first time. But that would be very difficult or idiotic. And the same thing, climbing the divorce can be very difficult. And don't do it alone. Find somebody to help you out. Reach out. And you can also email us at rockinglifepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can leave a message via the link below in the description, an audio message. Either if you have questions, if you have something that you want us to talk about, or if you just want to let us know how we do. I'd love to hear your input. And just want to say a big thank you to you again, Jacob, for being on the podcast, taking time out to share your story. Of course, thank you for doing this. And everything you've said about finding community is super important. So I'm happy to be a part of that. That's awesome. Thank you so much.